The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you want to run with the Game Changers, I promise you're in the right place. This is the third of four very special episodes we're doing on Coffee Break with Game Changers, featuring MBA professors and MBA students at Baylor University in Texas, joined each week by an SAP thought leader. So we're delighted to do, I'm calling this a micro mini series, call it whatever you want. Today's buzz is risk. But before I get started on the topic, we have a special shout out to Dr. Van Gray at Baylor who is under the weather, not doing, not feeling well, and we're hoping that your doctors and the surgery will mend everything that's not going well, Van. We wish you were here with us today, and we're sending you a very gentle hug. So you're in our thoughts, and we're going to cover some of your topics on the show today because you work so hard to help prep for the show. So risk, well, we're not talking about health. We're talking about supplier risk management, and guess what? It's the fastest-growing discipline within supplier management. That may come as a surprise to all of you out there in our business listening audience all over the world. Why is this so important? Well, think about it. When a key supplier in your chain disrupts the supply chain, your costs of doing business are going to increase along with all kinds of risk, perceived, unperceived, known, unknown, for the buying part of your enterprise. So the big question on the table today is, does your organization have a solid risk management strategy in place yet? And I'm saying yet because you probably know about this, but maybe you haven't done what it takes to forestall it and get that risk mitigated and off the table. If you haven't done it yet, think technology. Ah, there's the key. I have a panel of experts here, one from SAP and two from the Baylor MBA program, who are going to help us solve the question today. So listen up. First up on the panel, I'm very pleased to welcome Eric Coker. He's a solution manager for Ariba Spend Visibility and Supplier Management Applications at SAP, Ariba, an SAP company. And Eric sent me an interesting quote from Louis Pasteur. Those of you scratching your heads, yes, Louis Pasteur was a French chemist, a micro biologist, but he's best known for discovering principles of vaccination, microbial fermentation, that's a big word, Bonnie, and pasteurization, that's what you all know him for. And here's the quote, five little words that pack a punch, chance favors the prepared mind. I think I have a new mantra for life. Eric Coker, welcome. How are you today? Doing wonderful, Bonnie, and thanks for uh, talking about the quote. It's uh, it's simple and pretty self-explanatory. You know, I first heard this quote as a teenager uh, when I saw the movie Under Siege Two, of all things. <laughs> so it's not like I was a you know a well-versed fifteen-year-old when I saw the movie, but uh, I just really love the quote. The main bad guy talks about it. He's an evil genius, right? So 
I just it kind of stuck with me. I thought, well, supplier risk, you know, that uh, that really applies to what we're talking about, because organizations need to have their stuff in order. In other words, uh, they need to prepare for bad events when they happen. So chance favors some prepared buying. You're prepared when the chance event happens. It won't cost you as much. It won't hurt you as much. And uh, it's just a good way to go through life. So, I mean, I think you could pretty much apply that quote to, to life in general, but very relevant to our discussion today. I agree. Very, very interesting. And uh, chance. We're talking about chance. We're talking about opportunities. We're talking about mitigating risk. But we're talking about the chances for success in keeping your supply chain healthy and solid and going in the direction you want it to. Is that correct, Eric? We're talking really an awful lot of opportunities and loopholes for the risk to go south. And the prepared mind would be what we talked about, I talked about in my opening, a solid risk management strategy. Is that, that how it lines up? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, I think you I think you hit the nail on the head there, Bonnie. Uh, it's when companies get ahead of the game and they begin to look at risk as being a strategic priority, knowing what the impacts could be if they don't make the right move, um, knowing their supplier, having that total visibility, uh, that 360 visibility where they, they're looking at their supplier from several different angles, um, operational, different categories of risk, and how that marries to their transactional uh, database. Uh, what, what's actually going on with those different suppliers? And then if a bad event happens, like I know one that's often quoted is the Fukushima disaster in uh, Japan mm-hmm. in 2011, right? So when that nuclear plant goes down, that affected several different suppliers. Um, it may be a second or third tier supplier that you have in your chain. And if that's the only supplier where you get one very critical part uh, for say a manufacturing process, something that your business is making, and that could have a huge detrimental effect to your business. Um, you may not even know what impact that has, but companies that are doing it right are the ones that can forecast that. Um, so that's what uh, that's where this discussion is going today, I believe. Thank you, Eric. Good points. And I just want to put one more thought on the table here before I introduce our two panelists from Baylor, our, our MBA students. Uh, business is global. Nobody's just doing business in their backyard. So you can have so many suppliers in the chain. As you said, secondary, tertiary, they can just be out there. It's a ripple effect, and, and it can be huge. Even for a mid-sized company, would you say, Eric, there's so many levels in that supply chain. You might not even know who's on that dotted line. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, you want to track as many tiers as you can, you know, secondary, tertiary, um, and it's important because if you know what's going on um, at the baseline level, is just basically see your supply chain. You may not have to track the entire long tail. You at least have a picture of areas you can attack, you know, where it has heavier risk based on a particular industry or if it's a country. Make sure that you're not um, hit in the back, right, or shot in the hamstring with mm-hmm. some unforeseen event because of a regulation change. And then all of a sudden, one of your suppliers wasn't compliant. Or, you know, you have a supplier that has forced labor in some country, you know, in in, uh, East Asia, for example, where now you have a sustainability issue for your company. And these are things that these are, you know, uh, bugs under the rug that you really don't want to have exposed. So, you know, the companies that are tracking it efficiently and thoroughly are the ones that will minimize that disruption. 
And back to our Louis Pasteur quote, chance favors the prepared mind and the insight and visibility into the extended supply chain. Thank you, Eric. Great intro to our topic. And now I'm pleased to welcome the first of our two MBA students today from Baylor. Her name is Sarah Hill. And Sarah sent me a quote from C.S. Lewis. And I have to ask you to forgive me, Sarah. I had to look up C.S. Lewis just to see the extent of his renown. And it turns out the most famous thing is he wrote The Seven Chronicles of Narnia. If we had more time on the show, I'd give you a pop quiz and ask you to name all seven of the Chronicles because I looked them up and they're here in my notes. But here's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis. Failures, repeated failures, are signposts on the road to achievement. One fails forward towards success. That's a wow quote. Sarah Hill, welcome. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well, Bonnie. Glad to be here. Delighted. Um, I can hear the smile in your voice. I know you're happy. I like to hear that. So tell me, how did you come to pick the C.S. Lewis quote for a topic on supplier risk management, Sarah? Connect the dots for me. I can see how it can seem like it's a little bit of an opposition to what we're talking about today when we're talking about supplier risk and how to keep these failures to a minimum. But this quote really struck me because I think we're always afraid of failures, and when they happen, we shy away from them, right? But I think the most important is, especially when we're talking about supply chain management, is having an ability to learn from these failures and mitigate based on this. So there are these, of course, failures are going to happen in our supply chain, but being able to have a process in place that mitigates those as quickly and without as much cost as possible. So uh, when looking at this quote, I definitely think of my own life and how I try to avoid these failures. Mm-hmm. But it's good to be able to lean in when they do happen and don't um, focus on avoiding them, but actually seeing what you can learn from them and moving forward. Very, very smart approach. Have you heard the expression, Sarah, fail fast and fail often? You ever heard that? Absolutely. I think it's a good one. Yeah, that's a mantra. We do a lot of shows on uh, startups and small businesses, and that's something that apparently is. I have a, a panel coming on talking about small business on May 6th, and uh, Susan Solovic, the, the small business expert who is a, a regular on, on Fox and on other major network shows, um, she said that failing a lot, failing often and learning from it is a more expensive but sometimes a better lesson than an MBA. I'm sorry to tell, oh, sorry no, to tell you. And, yeah, she said it's more expensive but it can be more of a life's lesson than, than even getting your MBA. I just realized that because I just wrote up her quote for the May 6th show. <laughs> so I had to, had to throw that in. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. And now I'd like to introduce your colleague, also a Baylor MBA student. It's Aaron Peavy. And Aaron has sent me a quote from Ernest. Hemingway, what can I say? And here's the quote. The best way to find out if you can trust somebody is to trust them. We used to call that a tautology, Aaron. That's a circular reasoning, you know, Mobius strip, where it just goes around and around and around without an end, like an egg doesn't have a beginning and an end. Aaron Peavy, welcome. How are you today? I'm great, Bonnie. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for for this fascinating quote. Talk to me, Ernest Hemingway. How does he get into his show about supplier risk management? This I want to hear. Right. Well, actually, in in supplier risk, I was actually perusing through and thought of this quote, and actually, it applied really well after we we talked to a bunch of companies dealing with supplier risk specifically, or how they either dealt with it or didn't yet have a strategy in place like you talked about earlier. So that quote to me, it talked about the majority of companies today are working with people they trust, and that's how they believe they're mitigating risk. They're not so much focusing on the technology aspect. Again, you mentioned that earlier, but they're just Mm -hmm. focusing on 
you get in these relationships where you trust these people, then things might should work out to the best of your ability. And we're not all sure how else you can do that, but there's other ways to mitigate it. And so that quote really came to mind and thought, you know, a lot trust is a great thing, but you can couple that trust with a lot more to, to help mitigate more risk in the future. And, and Aaron, your quote goes so beautifully hand-in-hand hand with Sarah's quote from C.S. Lewis, failures, repeated failures, are signposts on the road to achievement. One fails forward towards success, thinking if you learn that you couldn't trust somebody and you have a failure, as Sarah said, lean in and do what you can to mitigate it and learn, learn, learn. Eric Coker, I want to get you in on this just again before we get to the What's in Your Cup Today segment. Uh, we've had some mm-hmm. very interesting quotes from Sarah and Aaron. Any thoughts on these, these young MBA students with these? wonderful, wonderful uh, quintessential quotes they put on the table for us today? You know, you know, they are so driven. Um, I, I have found that working with them, they have a, a very good intellectual acumen to just pick up things very quickly. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult topic, right? And what we try to do is just jazz it up a little bit. Uh, there's only as much as sexy a supplier risk management can, can get, right? And a lot of people don't even know really what it is, what's behind the scenes. Uh, what the big struggles are with companies out there, and how do we make it interesting and relevant to people that want to have more interest in this topic and learn more about it, and then, of course, do something about it. Um, That's our ultimate goal is to take this information, uh, make it fun to where it's, uh, you know, relevant to people out there, and then they can uh, pick it up and run with it. It, it, It's hard because there's so many different directions you can take this. Um, But it's been an absolute pleasure working with their team, Uh, I I can't say enough nice things about the Baylor staff and and working with their students. So it's been an honor. Good. Good. And, uh, well, I'm sure it's still an honor. And I want to Mm -hmm. mention I'd like to read Dr. Van Gray's quote, uh, which takes this all in a slightly different direction. And then I'm going to go back to Eric and ask him what he's drinking, and we'll move on with the show. Dr. Van Gray sent me the following quote, and this is in his own words. As our world becomes increasingly connected and multicultural, Supply chains and their good management will be important fuel to the elimination of poverty, eradicating diseases, and to increasing rates of literacy with freedom of thought. Now, that's a heavy-duty quote if I ever heard one. So uh, we might t- cover some of that, the, the importance of good supply chain management and how it has, obviously, social and economic in, in implications way beyond just a particular company that is dealing with these suppliers. So there you go. Van Gray, you have been properly represented on today's show. Eric Coker, I'm going to circle back to you and ask you the key question we ask on all of our Coffee Break shows. What are you drinking? What's in your cup right now? Or what do you plan to drink after the show? Eric? I love this question. It's not one I really think about (laughs) most. It's because I'm so boring when it comes to my coffee, unfortunately. But it's just a good medium blend. Colombian coffee with some cream and sweetener. Uh, not much to it. I have to admit I'm a bit conservative in my coffee drinking. Uh, speaking of risk management, I don't take a lot of risk there. And I know that I should be more bold and have black coffee You know, for my health. People talk about the true notes of different coffees out there. But frankly, it's kind of like one of those areas where I just don't care. And in about once a month, I'll try black coffee just to get myself into it, kind of like a certain type of scotch or something. Uh, mm-hmm. But this doesn't do it for me, and I, I got to have my sweetness. And so I'm at the point where just you know, caffeinate me and make it taste good. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I have to tell you that yesterday on two different, uh, what do we have? How many toasts? Yesterday was Tuesday. I did two different radio shows for SAP. Uh, we did Game Changing Women, and we did Digital World with Game Changers. And a guest on one show said that she was drinking 
camel's milk and that it was the rage and she was served it by Bedouin family when she was traveling in the whatever part of the world and it's served with all kinds of spices and then on the second show another panelist said she was drinking goat's milk so those were the first introductions of goat's milk and camel's milk on coffee break with game changers so there's a a little bit far afield thank you eric enjoy your caffeine and taste good i'm with you just give me the good stuff sarah hill what is your what kind of drink is your young mind wrapping itself around right now are you drinking something interesting and fun or are you planning something after the show sarah Well, I'm going to go with my old standard with some green tea with lemon. It's really my most healthy way I start my day because I have a penchant for Reese's and Peeps. So I have to have some way to get some (laughs) healthiness in my day. Um, I'm the same as Eric. I have to have some sugar in my coffee if I'm going to have it. My dad always says, do I want some coffee with my sugar? But I think that's pretty, you know, you got to get some sugar somehow. Am I right? I, I listen. I, I'm not going to have this just between you and me. Nobody else is listening, but I I'm couldn't sure agree no. with couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, give give me some real sugar once in a while, and and just let me say, ah, that felt good. I'm sorry. Still very old fashioned. Thank you for sharing, Sarah. Aaron Peavy, I can't ask you to top those two, but you can certainly try. Go ahead, Aaron. Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to try to. I actually do drink my my coffee black, but I, oh. I learned doing that when I was um, in the practice of preparing tax returns. So it gave me something to do in between the many tax returns I was preparing, actually. But uh, I, it's actually my birthday today, so I will be having a a, a Francis Connor beer later to celebrate this this historic day. It is tax day, so that's another I guess funny mention. Wow! And now I'm assuming you're 21 today. Is that right? Uh, yeah, a little, a little older than that, but I a little older than days. that. Oh, you do? Okay, that's right. Well, MBA, MBA student, you're probably somewhere in your early 20s. I'm guessing. Well, happy birthday! And my part of the world, we say Mazel Tov and good health and all that good stuff. And uh, enjoy your beer afterwards. Uh, no surprise, none of you really know me very well, but no surprise, they don't let Bonnie have caffeine on radio show days, and you probably already figured out why not. So I'm just sipping a nice, cool glass of filtered water and with a, a green straw green for money i don't know we're talking about supplier risk, supplier risk so there you go a green straw for our money and that's what we're talking about our topic today is supplier risk management time to get serious yes it is time to get serious it's a very complex topic but as eric coker said we're going to try and lighten it up make it a little more interesting and fun and when we come back eric is going to start us off on our round table we have all kinds of great information and notes from him on this study he's been working on with the baylor students so we'll be right back don't even think of touching that mouse, that app, that dial. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, and I'm still Bonnie D. Graham. We'll be right back. Brad out. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The time for enterprise mobility is now, according to IDC. By 2013, over 1.19 billion workers worldwide will be using mobile technology, comprising 34.9% of the workforce. The impact of mobility on business is clear. Increasing numbers of business users are expected to handle critical tasks and decision-making in real time, no matter where they are. SAP and Sybase and SAP Company offer mobile applications and underlying infrastructure with integration to SAP systems for secure access to business processes anytime anywhere and on any device www.sap.com 
When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now, let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers. Welcome back. Our topic today is an important one that impacts any company. If you have suppliers, you have a supply chain. If you have a supply chain, you have risk. If you have a supply chain with risk, you need to manage it. Our topic is supplier risk management time to get serious, and that we are. My panelists today are Eric Coker at Ariba, an SAP company, Sarah Hill, a Baylor MBA student, and Aaron Peavy, also a Baylor MBA student, and it's his birthday today. I have to do a shout-out to Baylor MBA, that's Baylor underscore MBA, who is tweeting their tootsies off. And I see a note here at hashtag SAP Radio. It says, what's in your cup? Eric, coffee. Sarah, green tea with lemon. And Aaron, birthday beer. Happy birthday, Aaron. So you've officially been acknowledged. And I have to do a shout-out to Karen Geraldo, who is one of our most loyal listeners. And I think she's in Canada. And Karen, thank you for tweeting as well. That's Kay. Geraldo 24 if you're looking for her on on Twitter. Okay, we're ready to start our 30-minute roundtable. We have a lot of information to cover. Uh, Eric Coker, you've graciously agreed to cover some of the notes from Van Gray who can't join us today, and I think this is a really good place to start. Let me read this sentence, and or two sentences, and then you can take it and expand it. Uh, Van Gray says, there is a general lack of visibility of data across the members of the value chain. Enterprises desire rich and salient information of their supply chain in addition to standard metadata associated with supplier records. And then let me add one more sentence. He says, there is not a single source of the data among supply chain members, and we also know that as no single source of truth. Is that going to be elusive forever? Is there a way to get a single source of truth? Eric Coker, why don't you expand this, please? I think it'll be elusive forever. No, I'm just okay. kidding. But, uh, <laughs> Show's <laughs> over. We're done. Okay. Sorry. We can't help you. All right. We'll stick around and have fun anyway. Go ahead, Eric. Um, it's, it's been a challenge since the 80s. I mean, ERPs have been around, uh, really started to deploy on massive scale in the early 90s. And uh, really, we haven't harnessed and uh, kind of uh, honed in a lot of the uh, different supplier data records that sit in, on different systems. So Van, Dr. Gray is absolutely right about when he says there's a general lack of visibility of this data. Um, you know, you have multiple ERP systems, multiple procurement systems, right, transactional, various transactional systems, uh, ERP financials, and a lot of times the supplier record touches each of these. Well, if you think about it from an IT landscape or data perspective, these supplier records each have an ID, right, and different components of information. And suppliers are big. You know, they have different plant operations, different regions that they do business in. And it's what buyers are trying to do is see one spot, the dashboard of sorts, sort of like a supplier 360, where they can see various components of information about that one supplier so they know what's going on. Furthermore, if they have the right technology solution, they can then take some action on that. So they can score them survey them or take corrective action via automated workflow uh, that procurement managers, sourcing managers, and uh, even risk managers can use. And I think that there's a way to do this, right, but it takes executive buy-in from the top down. 
And uh, it obviously takes an efficient system landscape where the integration points are in place to accomplish that from a technical scale. Um, so that's one of, the, one of the biggest components. We have information, which is the metadata, the metadata that you mentioned, and, of mm-hmm. course, enriched information. So now once we have the, the metadata lined up and we have supplier IDs reconciled and deduplified, then what do we want to know about the supplier? What's their risk score, right? We have third-party data feeds that can come in, uh, various components of information about their sustainability, uh, you know, their financial risk, uh, just their, even their topical information, right? Are they... Uh, well, there is supplier information at the metadata perspective, but then further enrichment like, uh, you know, the CSR scores, uh, green, diversity. So there's a lot of different information components we can bring together in one space. And that's what we want to do is centralize the supplier record. Thank you very much, Eric. Sarah Hill, what are your observations on centralizing the records and having one point of truth? Possible? Impossible? I think it's going to take a lot of cooperation, and I also think that companies are reluctant to give up their information about supplier risk and about their suppliers because that Mm. is a key competitive advantage for a lot of these companies. So that's going to take a little bit. It's going to take some incentive for companies to be able to open up more of their supplier um, risk management. But internally, um, we did a survey of 37 important members of the supply chain um, in different companies, and we saw that most of them don't use ERP systems. Only seven out of the 30 people we surveyed said that they use ERP systems. So we see this is a key um, moment for companies to come in and have a product offering like Eric was talking about. Sarah, what kinds of companies did you interview of those 37? Where were they based? What size companies? Were they a, a spread of industries? Can you give us a little more about your research, please? I'd love oh, to hear it. I would it. love to. This has been my life for the last few months. Oh, well, let's share your life. Go ahead. <laughs> I love it. Well, we've done all kinds of different companies from retail to aerospace engineering to from some large um, beverage manufacturers to candy suppliers to um, even some grocery stores and some commodity suppliers. So some examples, we interviewed Dillard's, we interviewed um, Pilgrim's and HEB, and we got to talk to a lot of different procurement officers and supply chain managers in these companies. An interesting thought about the different companies is each company manages supplier risk in a different way. So they all have a different type of even hierarchy in relationship to supplier risk. Some people have one supply guy, and it's just him, and he knows everything. But others have buying, procurement, and sourcing different departments. So this brings up another issue that we might touch on later, but mm-hmm. the way that this information gets siloed between these different um, different branches of the company or even just the institutional knowledge that one person has in their head or in a lot of their cases, they say, we just, we just know from our gut. So this is a, a kind of a barrier to having really cohesive supply chain risk management. It sounds like it. Ask Bob, right? Well, Bob's not here today. He's taking a personal day. But we have to look into our supply chain. We think we have a risk exposure here. Well, Bob will be back in a day or two. I don't know. Maybe we can reach him on his cell phone tonight. I'm not sure. Well, what about Mary? Yeah, Mary might. She works with Bob. Maybe she has a feeling in the pit of her stomach. Mary, what do you – not very scientific, not very high-tech. And it sounds – 
it sounds like it's adding to the risk rather than mitigating the risk if you you trust it all to one person. Even if Bob is really smart and has great systems, it's just not enough. Thank you, Sarah, for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Aaron Peavy, got to get you in on this conversation. Is this research your life as well? Oh, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. (laughs) Good life. It's been a good life, though. Absolutely. I'm glad. Talk to me. What's your perspective on on the single point of truth and visibility and who should be looking at it and and managing it? Aaron? Uh, I think actually, I think Sarah nailed it where the first part, to get to that single truth, you're right. I mean, the top companies we spoke to, we couldn't even get a good glimpse of they were managing risk in some way the best. I mean, I'm talking Fortune 20 companies were managing every aspect of risk already, and it was all proprietary. And, and one company said it's, it's against our policy to even discuss this. So, um, mm. so sometimes I think that Eric mentioned this earlier, buy-in from executives at the top has to be done. But I also think at the same time there are ways to circumvent that now the way big data and, and these this metadata is being presented there's ways to use predictive analytics to get around that and circumvent that and see trends ahead of time and so i think you're going to start seeing more and more in that cuz why would why would the company who's winning in in supply chain and they're able to offer lower margins why would they give you that information well if a smaller company was able to circumvent that with predictive analytics, then they're mm-hmm. more maybe more willing once they see the advantage of that to collaborate. So really I think it's the part of everyone to try and buy into this new technology and, and then you start bridging together whether you want to or not. It becomes game theory from that point on. <laughs> Thank you very much. Eric Coker, what do you say to your two colleagues on the panel? Very interesting points they brought up in this, this important research. Any thoughts you want to add since we started with you? I do. It's funny how, how uh, it's mentioned that uh, the, about the proprietary nature of sharing what these big top 20 companies are doing or Fortune 20. And I think that's because it's a comp- huge competitive advantage. I mean, I believe that's what all three of us believe. Um, mm-hmm. And since they're first to market to really do something like this, there's a hodgepodge of combination of organic solutions that are homegrown within the company and marrying various technology solutions uh, from different vendors, usually. Um, and it's, there's so many different ways that these companies manage risk. I think they're a little insecure about whether they're doing it right. Uh, so they don't necessarily want to benchmark, uh, but I think most importantly for them, they want to know if they're doing it right for their industry. So it, it, when they look at how, how, how mature their supplier risk program is, they want to at least know that they're meeting regulations not going to get uh, bit in the back with with something that could hurt them, right, because they didn't track the right regulations, which is very relevant to their industry. Um, mm-hmm. But the, it, it was very interesting how, how much of these companies uh, pushed back and gave nebulous answers about their IT landscape, about how they were actually connecting the dots and managing supply risk. Uh, predictive analytics is very interesting as well. That's so new. It's <laughs> It's kind of like when Zoolander mentions the Magnum look, you know, you shouldn't even be talking about it. It's kind of like one of those things, right? And uh, I think companies can can get on the forefront of predictive analytics, but first, you know, that uh, all that data in the data lake or big data sitting on the various systems has to be aggregated first. They have to know what to look for. So all very interesting stuff. 
Eric, whose job is it to aggregate that data? If you're going to put in a predictive system and it's actually going to work, as you say, you probably have to unsilo it. You have to put it in one place. You have to evaluate the data, big data, lots of it, velocity and veracity and, and all the good Vs that go with big data. Whose job is it? That sounds monumental to me. It sounds like it could take so long that a lot of risk would fall through the cracks while you're just aggregating your data. What do you observe? You have to have people that are data scientists that know mm-hmm. how to do this. So you have functional people that will sit in the various silos. It could be a risk manager, supplier manager, procurement manager, sourcing manager. You have all these different uh, directors and manager ranks within different departments. But then they need to have those data mining skills in order to pull information from, say, a CRM system uh, or different ERP systems, pull it together, and then have a BI tool or business intelligence tool uh, to write the algorithms that will crunch that data and then understand what's an outlier versus not the different patterns and patterns and trends and whether or not it's useful information, right? They may get some results, mm-hmm. but only a true data scientist will really know how to look at that data and filter out the noise versus what's a true pattern and very relevant to what they're trying to achieve. So that's great um, point. It, it's an Thank interesting you. combination. Yeah, Tony, it is. Can I and add I, something? Please go ahead, Sarah. I was going to ask Sarah. you if you want to be a data scientist when you grow up. Go ahead, Sarah. <laughs> well, I wish um, I had a mind like that, but I'm going to stick to the management side over here. Um, but when we're looking at this um, use of big data, one of our interesting points in our survey was that only 77% of the companies we analyzed said that they used predictive analytics in evaluating risk. So Eric is right on the money talking about how companies aren't there yet, but this is a huge hole in the market where someone can come in and really create a solution that is perfect for these companies, for the 77% of companies that aren't using it. Mm, that's a lot. Long, long road to go. Mm-hmm. Sarah, while I have you, I'm looking at your notes you sent me before the show, and I find something interesting I don't think we've covered yet. I'm probably going to ask you not to use company names, uh, and you know I what I'm me- talking about. You sent me a use case that is, is very well known, but I think we'll skip the company names, and you can just describe it. You say, our research has revealed a focus on brand risk mm-hmm. in supply chain risk management, the increased visibility for brands based on social media and the internet affects the supply chain. So how do you define brand risk? This is very interesting to me because it, it goes to a whole different dimension, Sarah, other than crunching the numbers and getting the siloed data and, and getting your data scientists to put it into a system. This is the, the people side, am I right? So what is brand risk? And, and give us an example, of, an indirect example of how this can affect a big company. Sarah, go ahead, please. Absolutely. Well, I love to focus on the people side of the matter. When we're talking about this brand risk, this is how people think about your company and what's out there, especially on social media. What are people saying on Twitter, on Facebook? What's the, what's the buzz? And we have a lot, a lot of social media listening tools like Hootsuite that can go through and aggregate this data and let you know what people are saying. But companies are learning to see that this is an important part of supply chain risk. And if there's someone, I think we all remember Fox, or um, a large supplier of some of a electronics company, that they had um, some trade issues or some labor issues back a 
one or two steps below in the supply chain. And this really came to the forefront of their um, consumers in the U.S., and it caused a lot of hoopla there. But it wasn't the actual company. It was just their suppliers and having issues in the supply chain. So this really has an effect not only on the company, just not only the company has to manage their brand risk, but they also have Mm -hmm. to manage their second and third tier suppliers when it comes to that. Sounds like there's a lot of opportunity for great risk there. And, and Sarah, we're no strangers in our culture to stories of uh, in the fashion world. How often do we hear of uh, very poor employee practices, management practices mm-hmm, in, in, in Asian supply places where factories and child labor and sweat labor, what we used to call that. And, mm-hmm. and um, it's certainly the media is no stranger and the media loves to seize on this and say, didn't so-and-so, this great designer, know that 15 steps down on the supply chain, somebody had an unsafe factory? And it does come back to bite you in the proverbial you-know-what. Aaron mm-hmm. Peavy, join us on this. Aaron, any thoughts on, on brand risk? A very interesting topic. Yes, ma'am. Actually, just another example to add on to that. Recently, another company um, was put into a tight spot after um, an organization didn't like the partnership between the two companies. Uh, one was an oil company, and the other was, you know, children's toy manufacturer. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the organization didn't like that partnership at all. And and it took a commercial that was aired about them for them to realize that the partnership, oh, this is going south, and they ended the partnership after it was too late. Whoops. So th- there are ways to, to mitigate this, and, and like Sarah said, there, there's software out there now that can crunch that and start showing you, man, the chatter's really getting up about this partnership. We, sh- we should probably take a look at this, and and that's really what it's about, is about mitigating this early on and being proactive about it. And it's interesting, the brand risk, it's, most people, what we've been talking about before now and before the brand risk is, is mainly operational components mm-hmm. and financial components. and. We're proposing that along with the brand risk, there are way more risk components that need to be assessed, such as brand risk. And so that's where it gets more complex on that issue. But but that's also how I feel about brand risk. Good, and good point. In, Thank you. Too. Eric, please, uh, yes. Yeah, so what was so interesting, I, I actually know this use case that they sent you, mm-hmm. I believe, and uh, they have a lot of cash. I'll put it that way. So they're a huge company <laughs> that can spend a, a lot of different technology solutions. Oh, but, yeah. um that, that being said, they were doing something very innovative, and that was using social media analytics for their supply chain. And that typically what's been done in the last seven to eight years is voice of customer programs are box for short, right? So we do voice of customer where companies are communicating with their customer base via social media. But now what they're doing is semantic layering, uh, so measuring the semantics through various algorithms of social media analytics are leveraging that type of software, and then figuring out what their suppliers are doing. So that's the same thing, but for the supply chain. And I can't name any other examples or even know of any other examples than Mm -hmm. one or two companies that are doing this, but it's very forward-thinking. And uh, it's something that maybe could be useful within a technology solution eventually. Eric, whose job is this? I asked whose job it was to unsilo the data. Aaron or Sarah or Eric, whose job is it? Is it a data scientist? Is it a social data scientist? Who would, if you were applying for this job or you knocked on the door of a big company, uh, Sarah or Aaron, and said, hello, I think you need to mitigate your brand risk, and I think social is a component we know you're not paying attention to, and I have an MBA, and I'm looking at this, and I would like the job title of, what would that job title be? Anybody? That's a unique question, Bonnie. I would probably say 
that you would be looking for a social media analyst. So this is someone who understands the different ways that the social media is are being used and can use one of these other um, softwares that are out there to analyze the landscape of social media and be able to see what exactly that means. Because yes, the um, software can aggregate this data, but it takes a person to be able to look at it and see, okay, this is the effect that it's going to have on our brand and what exactly needs to be done to help this kind of risk and emergency preparedness thing happen. Thank you. Erin, is this a job you would like? I just want to ask Erin, is this a job you would want to have, or are you going to stay more on the men? It depends on the technology available to me, but yeah, if something was aggregating (laughs) it for me, I I could handle that. I I, I also (coughs) think that companies are are mainly putting this risk component. You keep talking about, you're kind of hinting at companies need to be focusing more on this. And Right now, they're putting this risk component either at the top executive team that might be disconnected from, like, the key line mm-hmm. managers, or they're just letting line managers, you know, using the trust I talked about earlier with my quote, trusting them to handle the risk components. And so I think, personally, I think they should start setting up their own supplier risk, similar to other risk evaluations they have in their company. They need to set up a separate department within that since it is such a large component where you have your data scientists, you have your social media data scientists and the like, and there are much more risks to be considered as well to where you would need a department or maybe three or four individuals to do all of this. Thank you. I just think we just helped job creation in the United States and maybe around the world. Eric Coker, I heard you. I'm sorry for interrupting. Uh, comments, Eric? <clears throat> yeah, I, I like Sarah's point about just hiring that function, but hiring the person that's in that department, and really it should be outsourced as a department that serves other departments. Because social media can be centralized. You have various people working within that. Actually, it could be just two people, right? But then you have your voice of customer programs, your supply chain programs, um, your advertising, your marketing programs, right? Discussing events, trying to get registrations and signups. So I think it's a good idea to centralize that particular function and not within the e-procurement or supply chain. Thank you very much. I want to circle down to Aaron Peavy's discussion notes you sent me before the show, Aaron, and there's an old expression, let's start at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. I think that was actually in a song from the the Sound of Music, let's start at the very beginning. No, I'm not going to sing. Don't worry. I don't want everybody to drop off here. However, uh, I'm looking at Aaron's notes, and you have a very telling comment here. You say, a thorough onboarding process is essential for large companies to mitigate supplier risk. One large beverage distributor makes potential suppliers, and the key is potential, meaning they're not on board yet, run through their entire purchasing and logistical process before creating a relationship. So let's take a step back. Let's talk about not only mitigating risk, but trying to avoid it entirely by choosing carefully and knowing who you're literally getting in bed with when it comes to adding people, adding companies to your supply chain. Aaron, you want to expand this for us, please? Yes, ma'am. So, so yeah, so, so basically this is being proactive all the way. They might have their proprietary technology that we don't know what all the risks they're managing, but all the large manufacturers and all the large distributors will have this process in place where it's going to be a very, very thorough onboarding because, like you said earlier, people aren't operating in their backyard anymore. They're, they're global, and so they're going to send teams over to other countries. So in this instance – they would send a team over to China for, for their supplier over there. And um, what they would do is they would do audits of these companies to make sure they're even in compliance to begin with. Even after you pass that part, 
then they put in a few orders, and that company has to churn out everything to the specific grade before they're even considered for onboarding. Now, of course, they've put in a lot of costs to that point, so if you mm-hmm. can pass all those tests, you'll probably be onboarded. But if you don't pass that trial run, even after an audit, you, you won't be onboarded. That's the dating part before you get married or something like that, right? That's the courting process. Eric Coker, what do you think of this approach? Agree? I, I do agree. It, it's all over the map and how they do it, too. I think one of the most salient points that Aaron brought up was the on-site audits because you would think, well, how does a company actually do this? I mean, who's going out there? They will send their own people. So a lot of that tends to be in-house. Then there's outsource providers. So you actually have consultants such as Deloitte and Accenture that provide those type of activities, right? As they're both very heavy in the financial services sector and doing risk evaluations and analysis on companies, right? So they can provide that function. And there's also technology providers, too. There's various surveys that you can send out, uh, the questionnaires that suppliers have to fill out, and then that gets approved in-house by the buyer, and they, they try to validate that information. And it's funny because you'll have like a 500 600 item questionnaire come back and they literally have a team of three or four people that just go out and try to validate all of that data. So Hmm. as much as you can automate it, a lot of it still tends to be pretty manual, but it is dating, right? And it's very extensive. Sometimes I think it's overkill (laughs) based on what these companies are doing. But for some, they're so strategic and there's so many millions, sometimes even billions of dollars being spent, you know, for a supplier that it warrants that level of, um, of audit and the qualification before they decide to do business. Thank you very much. Sarah Hill, thoughts on this, on the dating process? Yeah, I think there's um, a really interesting point that Eric was saying that it might be a little too much investment on the Mm -hmm. onboarding process. So we're looking at that. We talk about the onboarding process, but what about the process after that? So once we get them on, oftentimes companies don't follow the suppliers as well as they can. They think, okay, we've invested maybe millions of dollars into the onboarding process, so we're just going to stick with the supplier because it is really expensive to get that um, the, those suppliers onboarded. So I think this kind of may, brings an opportunity in the market for someone to be able to have a lot of data on these suppliers already where a company can come and look at these key performance indicators, a fact sheet that is on the suppliers so they don't have to go out and do it themselves. Mm-hmm. Good point. Aaron. you want to wrap this part of the topic up? We're almost ready for our predictions, but I want to sneak in one more quick topic with Sarah. So, Aaron, anything else on this onboarding, how thorough it should or shouldn't be? Yeah, so so basically that they, they are like Sarah said it's hard to get out of that marriage once once you're married to them. So back back to my Ernest Hemingway quote, the best way to trust someone is to trust them. That that is not the direction this is heading right now. People are not going to just completely trust the supplier and and just one piece of facts that w- we saw in our research was one disruption in your supply chain for for major distributors cost them a 30% drop in their stock price. Just one major mm. disruption on a research taken of over 500 companies. On average, that was the drop. So, so these investments are way too huge. And, 
And so it would be great till we, we get to the point where we can trust them and we can start using technology, but it, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen anytime soon. Not there yet. Thank you very much. Sarah, I have one more point I pulled out of your talking points here that I, I would like to bring up. I've asked several times during our conversation, whose job is it? Where does this belong in the organization? And I'm reading this uh, very interesting comment here. You say there's a lot of literature about what needs to be managed when it comes to supply chain risk, but C-suite executives are yet to give supply chain risk a seat at the strategic table. Thoughts on that, Sarah? Why not? What are they afraid of? It sounds like a monumental risk, a deep, deep, dark hole that needs to be looked at and needs to be managed before, during, and after risk. So why isn't the C-suite moving a chair, making a place at the table for this part of their organization, Sarah? Well, Donnie, I think the way that you put it, this is a deep, dark hole. People don't know where to start. It's difficult to see, get all of this information that has been siloed out of these silos and out of um, the human element. People don't know how to access the information about these different different risks. And I also think that it varies from industry to industry. So it's hard to see exactly what the best in class are doing when it comes Mm -hmm. to mitigating supply chain risk. So these executives, not that they're... Oh, completely afraid, but I think it's just hard to know where to where to start when it comes to the supply chain risk, and they tend to focus on things that are that might happen every once in a while, disruptions in the supply chain, and when it comes to these large disruptions in the supply chain, it's hard for companies to forecast that. Although we we have some thoughts on how to forecast supply chain risk when we were talking about our big data analytics. But they sometimes think it's impossible to forecast these major disruptions in the supply chain. Thank you, Sarah. I sense mm-hmm. that there's a business opportunity for you and Aaron to go out after graduation and become supply chain risk management consultants. I think that's a great idea. I don't know how you feel about it. Eric Coker, any thoughts on the, why it's not a, 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 let's say, not an honored spot at the C-suite table yet? Well, 41% of CPOs, according to a uh, Deloitte study that came out, the CPO study, 41% of CPOs are heavily involved in risk management activities, but that spans across the organization. So it's not just supplier risk, although that's a big bulk of it, right? So I think it's growing. Again, it's the fastest growing segment within supplier management overall, and they just don't know how to set it up yet within a lot of companies. We flat had some customers tell us that uh, we, uh, we are, we're looking at it, but we're trying to, and we're trying to set it up. We don't exactly know which technology solutions to use or how to evaluate it. Um, a lot of them are doing it with Excel spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had some people at our last user conference tell us that they were using Excel spreadsheets to formulate all this, these risk indicators, and then they pass it along to various supplier managers, and then they would share that with their risk people right, that uh, manages compliance risk and a lot of other inherent risks within the company that are broader than just supplier risk. Um, I think that eventually they'll make it a point at the strategic table that they need a holistic risk management governance. So that tends to be the GRC department, governance risk and compliance. Mm -hmm. And they will include supplier risk a lot more in those discussions. Uh, Part of that, as we alluded to earlier, is a data challenge. So first they need to centralize the supplier record and assess what that risk is and what the framework is. But once they have that in place, it'll be a lot easier to get that mind share at the upper ranks 
and for them to manage it appropriately. Thank you, Eric. Guess what? We are now in our slide into home plate. We've got six minutes left till the end of the show. So I'm going to ask you, Eric Coker at Ariba, to take a look into the crystal ball, predict ahead, project, forecast, whatever you want to call it for the future. Do you like the year 2020? And if you do, what do you think will change if we met again? I hope we certainly do. And have this conversation at some point in the future. How far ahead can you see? And why don't you give me 90-second prediction wrap-up, Eric Coker, please. (laughs) Well, I, I believe that technology drives business forward. So as we listen to our customers, at the same time, we innovate. We take that information, we package it, and we pitch it to them, depending if they want that uh, certain solutions or not. And then we develop it based on that. So technology is really driving businesses forward of what is capable for them to do. And then we enable that with the consulting expertise or what we call, you know, best practices. Mm-hmm. And I think in the future, as we continue to innovate, with very popular topics and solutions like big data, CRM, uh, e-procurement continues to innovate, right? Business networks, it's all connected. Now you have supplier networks um, of millions of records sitting on a network, right? When you have that in place, you now have the foundation. So, in fi- you know, fast forward five years from now, I truly believe that those dots will be connected. It's just a matter of time. And enough customers or companies out there are certainly interested in it. So, it's just a matter of pulling the trigger and when, and it's very close. So I think that they'll have some predictive analytics for sure and being able to predict uh, what's going to happen with their supply chain, uh, maybe even down to the third-tier suppliers, and uh, automated rules that will allow them to um, <clears throat> take action, specific action, when suppliers you know, have a low score, per se, whether it's a scorecard or, or however, whatever scoring system they choose to set up. And uh, onboarding will be much more seamless and it'll be in an automated fashion, uh, a lot less phone calling, direct calling, and with a lot more help, too, I think, from partners, because the partner ecosystem is incredibly important to this. So once you can kind of connect the puzzle pieces together, get that executive buy-in at the top, and then marry this with the technology foundation, I really see supplier risk management being a much more seamless process uh, and directly linked to governance, risk, and compliance, something that feeds into a company's overall risk assessment, especially those Fortune 20 companies. Thank you, Eric. I need to save some time for Sarah Hill. Sarah, I think I can give you 60 seconds for your predictions. Why don't you hit hit it? Tell me how far in the future you can predict, and go ahead right now. Okay, I'll go quickly. Bonnie, I think I'm going to go out 10 years from now in 2025, seeing I think that there's going to be and very increased visibility in the supply chain. I'd like to say that everyone's going to be able to see this information. With the rate that visibility of data is growing, especially with the Internet and all kinds of social media sites, we're going to be able to see what people are doing, and I think that our supply chains will be much more cohesive, like Eric was talking about. With this increased visibility becomes the increased ability to really see what the, who the top suppliers are and what they're doing best. So I think we're going to have a much higher success rate and a much more emphasis on those predictive analytics. But I think that people are going to be sharing more information as well, just because it's out there and everyone's using it. And they'll hopefully come up with the same ideas. Thank you very much. Aaron Mm -hmm. Peavy, you're up. 60 seconds. Predictions. Hit it. 
Yes, mm. ma'am. So I think I agree with what Eric was saying about you, partnerships have to be formed for this data to be out there. And communities of industries are actually being formed right now. And it, it's developing, actually, where all this data is becoming more and more available across organizations. And they're freely given that out if you're in these communities. And so I think the data is going to be there for everyone to have. But in 2020, I think you're going to see these top Fortune 20 companies we keep mentioning that already have something in the works, and, and it's outpacing a lot of these midsize and other large companies that aren't dealing with this. I think they're going to be trying to find ways to gain back their competitive advantage because right now they're able to capitalize on, on the margins of mitigating this risk a lot better than other people are. And I think they're going to be, I don't think they're going to like the abundance of the information everywhere as much, and they're going to start losing their competitive advantage. I think it's going to even the playing field for a lot of people, actually. And and that, that's just how I see it happening in 2020 when all this data is out there. Thank you very much. Special shout-out to my three wonderful panelists. Eric Coker, such a pleasure to meet you and speak with you. And to our wonderful MBA students at Baylor University, Sarah Hill and Aaron Peavy. I hope you both have a great summer. Aaron's headed off to Zambia to help them figure out how to be smarter about their business opportunities. And, Sarah, you're going to go be a marketing intern somewhere in Texas. I think that sounds very exciting. And a shout-out to Lori Wilson at Baylor for helping put this together. Dr. Van Gray, we send you a very gentle hug. I hope the surgery goes well. Sorry we missed you today. Maybe we'll connect again. And to my colleague, Malcolm Kimberlin at SAP, thank you for innovating this idea of a micro mini series with Baylor. It's working out beautifully, Malcolm. So thanks for all your hard work setting this up. And I'll be back tomorrow with the debut of season three of Future of Business with Game Changers, 10 a.m. Eastern time. We're just about out of time. So thank you to Brad and the Business Channel team on World Talk Radio. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. And here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Of course, check to see who the supplier is. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today. Talk to you tomorrow. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.